Hi, I'm Jo Litson. Welcome to The Thinking Traveller, a series that draws on the passions, expertise and knowledge of Academy Travel's tour leaders to bring a wealth of insight to your travels, one topic at a time. Tenzing Norgay Sherpa is a household name to many. In 1953, he and Edmund Hillary became the first people to reach the summit of Mount Everest. It was Tenzing's lifelong dream and his seventh attempt. And yet his achievement was a double-edged sword, leading to fame and a comfortable life on one hand, but also to disillusionment and tragedy. Judy Tenzing joins us today to discuss the story of the illiterate, humble yak herder who rose to make his mark in history. Judy is a historian with a passion for South Asia. She has a degree in South Asian history and postgraduate qualifications in secondary teaching. She's taught at the University of Sydney's Centre for Continuing Education, offering courses in the histories, religions and cultural traditions of India, Nepal, Bhutan, Tibet and Myanmar. She's the author of a book called Tenzing and the Sherpas of Everest. So Judy, welcome. Lovely to see you. Thank you. So tell us about your name. You have Tenzing Sherpa's name. Yes. Well, I, I couldn't look less like a Sherpa, really, I suppose. Um, I uh, was married to a Sherpa, to Tenzing Norgay's grandson uh, for many years. That was a while ago now. But um, uh, I met him when I was working in Nepal as a, a trekking guide. Um, and we were married for 15 years. We have two children. Um, and the kids live here in Sydney. So, yeah, that's where the name comes from. So you're very close to this history then that you've written about. I was sort of quite close to this history before I met Tashi. I was, um, from childhood, I was completely enamoured of the whole Everest story and the whole idea of Sherpas and mountaineering and, and, you know, it was sort of, it was an unexpected thing in my family. Nobody else was interested in it. But as it turned out, it was a direction that my life went in that nobody would ever have predicted. So tell us a bit about Tenzing Norgay, where he was born and, you know, how the whole experience began, I guess. Mm. Unbeknown to most people, he was actually born in Tibet. But, of course, we're talking 1914, so the boundaries between Nepal, India, Tibet were not terribly clear at that time. He was an indentured serf, basically. His family were. They herded yaks for the, um, for the local monastery who owned a herd of yaks. And it was a very harsh, bitter existence. They were dirt poor. And ultimately, over a period of time, his family, he was one of 14 children, his family moved across the high passes and down into the the less harsh, I wouldn't say fertile, but less harsh valleys of the Everest region, just south of Mount Everest. And ultimately, that was where he grew up and where he really sort of formed his his dream for climbing Everest because um, in the 20s and 30s, the Sherpas would come back from Darjeeling where the main expeditions uh, used to leave from, the British expeditions, and they would come back with these wonderful stories about Everest and the, the British Saabs and all of this, and he was completely enamoured of the whole thing and then ultimately left his home in in the village in Nepal and went to Darjeeling looking for work on the expedition. So, and then he stayed in Darjeeling. So he was born in Tibet, raised in Nepal, but lived in, in India. So, um, you know, quite a mixed bag, which caused lots of problems later on. 
Yeah, we'll we'll get to those, mm. I guess. So he was 20, was he, when he first went on an Everest expedition? Yeah, he went in 1935. Um, he didn't have any documentation. He didn't. They used to have a little booklet that kept record of all the expeditions that they'd been on. Now, he hadn't been on any, so he didn't have one. And he lined up for... Um, the legendary British climber Eric Shipton. He lined up for Shipton's 1935 Everest expedition, but he didn't have a book. He had no recommendations. Nobody knew who he was. There was one spot left just for a load carrier, not for a climber or anything else. But he did have the most beautiful smile. He was quite famous for it. And he'd gone out and bought himself a very flash sort of safari jacket to try and spruce himself up a bit, and he got the last spot on that expedition. And Eric Shipton very, very quickly saw that he was not only very different in his ambitions, but also incredibly strong at altitude. And, uh, you know, on Everest, that's, you know, that's gold. If you find, uh, I mean, most Sherpas are good at altitude, but he was particularly good. Nothing slowed him down, really. So that was the beginning of his, his, um, his Everest career and then, of course, all the British talked to each other and then whenever anybody else came for an expedition, he certainly was, was first on the list. So his passion just grew and grew, did it? Yeah, it did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The passion was there from childhood. Even when he was a yak herder, he said he used to look up because the valley he was in was just south of Everest and he used to look up at Everest then and think, you know, why Why hasn't anybody climbed it? You know, why, why isn't? Is nobody in my uh, society and my community interested in doing that? These subs are all off doing doing these things, and I want to go with them, which is very unusual for a, an illiterate yak herder. It is, isn't it? Mm. So that the, the Western world coming in and that competitive thing. So mm. that was very different to what he grew up with. Oh, completely. I mean, that mountain had been. He'd lived. He was born on the north side of the mountain. He grew up on the south side of the mountain. And not once did anybody experience any interest whatsoever in getting involved in mountaineering. I don't think it was that he he wanted to be first. I don't think it was about being first. He just wanted to climb it. And he it took him seven attempts to do it. He did it on the seventh. But absolute tenacity and, and being in the right place at the right time, but also gaining this reputation as a a, initially as a very strong load carrier and then B, as a very good high-altitude climber. And that was ultimately how he ended up on expeditions where he had an opportunity to try for the summit. Very often Sherpas, they, they carry loads up to the high camps, but there's never any, any chance for them to climb. So what were the other expeditions he then went on? Uh, well, he'd been on many, many. He'd been on, um, as I said, seven Everest expeditions, but many other expeditions. He'd been in... Uh, in Tibet. He was in Tibet for almost a year with an Italian professor, Giuseppe Tucci, who was looking for ancient Buddhist documents. So he did that. He climbed with the Swiss in the Indian Himalaya. He was on other expeditions on smaller peaks in the Everest region. He enjoyed doing that. He loved being in the mountains, but Everest was what he wanted. So he was on 35, um, 38, 52, Really, it was that was his focus. If it came to a choice between an Everest expedition and something else, there was no dilemma for him whatsoever. So he climbed with the Swiss and the British. Mm. So were, were they very different, <laughs> the, the attitudes of those mountaineers? Very different. He always saw the Swiss as mountain people, which they are. 
And the Swiss, of course, didn't have the colonial history that the British did. And, you know, India at that time until 1947 was part of the British Empire. So it was all terribly sort of stratified and the classes were very clear. Everyone knew their place. He knew his place. But the Swiss weren't like that at all. And his first expedition with the Swiss in 1947 on a mountain called Kedarnath in India Uh, That was his first summit, the first time he ever actually stood on top of a mountain, and that was with the Swiss. But he was able to climb with them. His earlier Everest expeditions, he he carried loads. He wasn't able to be on the summit team. Um, And then with the Swiss in 1952, there were two attempts, spring and autumn, and he was on the climbing team in both of them. They almost made it, just not quite, 250 metres from the top. Wow. Yeah, broke his heart because he really wanted to summit with them. Yeah. And he forged a very special bond with Raymond Lombard. Yes, he? he did. Lombard was like a big kid, really. Very, very strong, uh, very determined. But, you know, climbing was a sport for him. It wasn't about national honour. It wasn't about money or fame or anything. He was a guide in the European Alps, so he climbed because he loved to do it, and that's exactly why Tenzing climbed. And they treated him as an equal, as a fellow climber, whereas... For the most part, he was staff, and he understood that. Of course, he understood that. He he lived in India. Everybody understood that, but it wasn't the same. Had he not had the Swiss expedition, he probably wouldn't have made the comparison, but having experienced that, the other thing that the Swiss had that really, really shocked him was uh, women climbers. Right. And there was a, a woman called Annalise Souter who was on the um, 1947 Kedarnath climb, and uh, Tenzing was quite taken aback by that. He could not imagine that a woman would climb a major peak. So, it, yeah, it was a steep learning curve for him, to say the least. Tell us about the story with Lombard's red scarf. Ah, yes. Well, when they they didn't get there on the second attempt in 1952 and um, a message came through for Tenzing offering him a place on the 53 British expedition, which, of course, was the successful one. Tenzing didn't want to take it. He wanted to wait for the Swiss, but the Swiss didn't have a permit for 53. Uh, They didn't have another permit. I think the French had 54. The Swiss had 55. But Lambert said to him, look, the British will probably do it next year and you need to be with them when they do. So he took off his scarf, which he always wore on mountaineering expeditions, and said, take this and wear it and, and I'll be there with you. So, you know, which was really lovely. Tenzing did. At the end of the expedition, he took the scarf off and and gave it back to Raymond Lambert in Switzerland. And um, when I, I I wrote a book about about the Sherpas and mountaineering, and I went to Geneva in uh, 2000 to interview Mrs. Lambert. Raymond had died by that stage. And when I walked into her apartment in Geneva, into the lounge room, there was a, a beautiful teak Buddha there. And the red scarf was around the neck of the Buddha. Oh, it was, yeah, it was really lovely. It was just that sort of, you know, tangible link to something I'd I'd read so much about. Yeah, it was very special. Yeah. Mm. And he also, when he climbed with the British before, you know, the final mm. one where they got to the top, he actually saved Edmund Hillary. He did Didn't on he? that in 1953. He did. Was it actually that, yeah. that climb? Well, okay. they were mucking around and they had to... Um, for acclimatisation, you have to go high, then come back down. You go a bit higher, you come back down again. So they had been quite high. They'd been up at um, on the South Col at 8,000 metres and they 
decided that, you know, they were on their way back down to base camp um, and Ed suggested they have a race. Very silly thing to do on the Kumbu Icefall, which is full of huge yawning uh, crevasses. And they had a race and there was a patch of snow that looked like snow and it wasn't, there was a huge crevasse underneath it, but they were roped together. So Ed fell and Ed was a very large man and Tenzing held him, threw himself on the ground, put his ice axe into the snow and, and held him until Ed could get, a, get his crampons gripped into the ice and haul himself out. Ed came over to Sydney for the launch of uh, of my book in 2000 and and we asked him about that story. The way he tells it was, it, it well, he's gone now, but it was very funny, very sort of droll sense of humour he has. But, um, you know, he talks about sort of spending time down there while Tenzing got his act together up the top. You know? <laughs> well, if he wasn't so strong, history might have been very different. <laughs> very different. And, yes, I mean, Tenzing was, Tenzing was tall for a Sherpa. He was about 5'10", which is very tall for a Sherpa. But, you know, Ed was six foot four or something and twice his size. But Tenzing was incredibly strong and quick. Yeah. You know, if he hadn't gotten a good grip, then the, they both would have gone down because they were tied together. So I yeah. guess there was a bit of self-interest there. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so why did that expedition succeed when the others oh, didn't? Well, that expedition was originally meant to be led by Eric Shipton, who was an old school climber. He was was one of the old brigade who thought that, you know, if you couldn't organise it on the back of an envelope, it was too big. And the British knew that they had 53, but they knew after that there was the French, there was the Swiss, and they if they didn't do it in 53, they probably were never going to be first. And they they had to be first. It was it was a matter of national honour. So they decided Shipton was probably not the man to do it. He'd had a couple of goes and nothing had happened. So they got in John Hunt, who was a military man, very good organiser, and it, it was massive. It was a military operation. I mean, they the way it was described was they laid siege to the mountain and that's pretty much what they did. So they had new kinds of oxygen, new kinds of tents, new kinds of equipment, everything, no expense spared. And... Um, and they had two summit teams. The first were two British guys, Evans and Bordillon. They had a, a shot at the summit, didn't get there. The preference for the British was for two Brits to climb. But when they didn't do it, then they just felt that the next two most likely candidates were, were Ed Hillary and Tenzing. And they were absolutely right. Why was there so much controversy about which one of them got to the top no. first? I mean, when you're talking 8,848 metres, and people are haggling over one metre, you know, it became very political in the end. It was quite ridiculous. And both Ed and Tenzing were sort of made a, a pact that they wouldn't discuss it with anyone. They just said it's so stupid. They were roped together. No one had been on the summit, so they didn't know when they got yet. The only way they knew they were on top was when you couldn't go up anymore. So, you know, it wasn't a case of, oh, there's the summit, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run for it. They didn't know where the summit was, but the problem was when they came down, Tenzing was illiterate. He couldn't read or write in his own language or any language. And the Nepalese press had all these bits of paper with stuff written on it that he couldn't read, and he just put his squiggly signature on it. And on that piece of paper, it was claiming the summit. I got there first, which the British were very upset about. He didn't know what he'd done, so he got upset. Ed was upset. 
The Indians, Nehru was upset. Everybody got, and poor Tenzing had no idea about any of this. He didn't even know what the, what the paper said and cared even less about who got there first. I mean, you know, it was completely irrelevant to both of them. Anybody who's ever done any climbing understands how completely ridiculous. I still get asked that question now and I just say it's, it's a question really not worth answering. Yeah. You know, you can't, on a mountain that size and you're, you're talking about two steps. Yeah. Yeah, it's a shame because mm. it, it haunted him in a way, didn't it? He was constantly asked about it. Constantly asked about it. And and Ed was constantly asked about it and um, and it used to drive him to distraction as well. Ed was called a spade a shovel. Tenzing was, you know, a, a lot sort of quieter and more polite, I suppose. But, yeah, Ed would just say, I'm not answering that. It's a stupid question. Don't ask me. So he, in the end he did after Tenzing had died, quite some years after Tenzing had died, I think it was the 50th anniversary um, celebrations in England, and he did actually come out at that point and say, look, we were on a rope, we were doing a sort of a, a leapfrog kind of arrangement, and and I got there first. No big deal. Yeah. So, you know, if if that's the only thing that matters about that expedition and about a lifetime of climbing... It's rather sad, I think. Yeah. Mm. So you mentioned Tenzing being illiterate, but he actually spoke several languages, didn't he? Uh, he spoke Tibetan, his own dialect. He spoke uh, Nepali, obviously. He spoke Hindi because he lived in India. Um, he spoke some English, not great English, but enough to get by. And, that, yeah, that was it. That's quite enough. Yeah. <laughs> but when they were coming down from the mountain... Mm. Did he have any idea None. of what was, what was coming? None whatsoever. He had a, I spoke to Charles Wiley, who um, was on the expedition, uh, a British climber, and he speaks fluent Nepali. He was a Gurkha officer during the Second World War. And he said, he said, as we were walking down, he said, I used to walk with him and try to explain to him in his language how when we get back to civilization. Things are going to be very different. He just said, no, 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 I'm just going to go home and, you know, be with my family and have a rest. And Charles tried to say, well, that's not going to happen. But, you know, why would he have any idea? He'd, you know, it was a world he'd had nothing to do with. He'd barely even been to a city. And there he was in Kathmandu. I mean, it was just awful. I remember my mother-in-law, who's his eldest daughter, saying that first night in Kathmandu they stayed in... Um, Oh, I don't know. The king put them up somewhere in Kathmandu, and she said he he laid down on the bed and sobbed. She said, "I in my whole life I'd never seen him cry." Wow. She said he was just distraught, and he said he actually said to them, "Then I wish I'd never climbed it," which is terribly sad. It is sad. Mm. So, what was his life like after that? In many ways, it was good. He was given a, a a job by Nehru, who opened the Himalayan Mountaineering Institute in Darjeeling, so he had a job for life. He was given a house in Darjeeling. He had this great big, you know, two-storey house, which was beyond his imagination. He travelled the world. He came to Australia a couple of times um, giving talks and, well, he used to bring his daughter with him who would translate because his English wasn't really that good. But, you know, people just were happy to go along and see him. So, you know, he did a lot of that. He did a bit of climbing but only for fun. But, you know, he worked full time. So, you know, it was always that constant battle of reconciling who he was at heart and who he was expected to be as a public figure. I don't think he ever really came to terms with it. And then later in life he sort of drank more than he should and, you know, he had a marriage that wasn't good for him and 
a latter marriage that wasn't good for him. And yeah, he died in 1986. I met him in 1985 in Darjeeling. And he just looked to me like a broken old man. It was really sad, you know, sort of drinking too early in the day. He looked tired. Anybody who came to talk to him, which is what I had come to do, he didn't trust them, was sad. Yeah. And I don't think he got much support from anybody. The Swiss, they're not the Brits so much. Charles Wiley kept in touch with him, but the others didn't really. Mm. Mm. So interestingly, so he was desperate to have a son. Yes. So he married again, so he had two wives. He had three, actually. He had three. His first wife died in 1944, during the Second World War, he was working at a, a British military base in uh, Chitral, which is modern-day Pakistan. I think she had probably had tuberculosis for some time, but it, it became very, very bad. And she died there and he ended up with two little girls aged uh, six and four. And um, he put them in a basket on the back of a pony and walked from Pakistan to Darjeeling, pretty much. He got a train for some of it, but took them home, married his, the wife who died, married her cousin, but it was sort of a, you would say a marriage of convenience. They were very, you know, they were very compatible, very good friends. She went through the whole Everest thing with him. But towards the end of her life, she died of cancer. He took in another wife and had four children with her, three boys and a girl. So he had ended up with the two girls from the first marriage no children from the second one, and then the third marriage, he had four. So how many of his family have climbed Everest? His son, Jumling, uh, from the third wife, he's climbed Everest, and uh, my former husband, Tashi's climbed it three times. So that's it, really. No one else in the family is really interested. It's a lot of pressure on them. I know Tashi felt a great deal of pressure to do it, A, because he was a climber, but at that stage... Jumling, the other son, hadn't climbed, so there was no there was no one in the family who'd done it. And I think he he sort of felt at some stage he just had to do it. He we had three shots at it, and and the second time he did it, and then the third time. Yeah. So, what do you think of um, Tenzing's legacy? It's interesting. I think it's interesting from the perspective of my own two kids who have grown up in Australia, so they've been to Nepal many times, but they it didn't mean anything to them at all. I remember my daughter when she was very young being asked by a journalist, I think she was seven, and the journalist said to her in a rather patronising way, are you going to climb Everest like your daddy when you grow up? And she just looked at him with, you know, one hand on her hip and said, you know what, I'm so over Everest <laughs> at seven. But as they've gotten older, it's begun to dawn on them really what his legacy was and really, you know, how lucky they are to be a part of it because he changed everything for the Sherpa people. He, I mean, Ed went in there and did fabulous work building schools and hospitals and things, but Sherpa really, uh, Tenzing put the name Sherpa on the map. He opened up the world of mountaineering to them. You know, he showed them that they're in that very traditional, enclosed sort of culture that they lived in and society that they lived in. You know, he showed them that there was a great deal more to the world than this. And he, for one, sort of reached out and took it with both hands and a lot of young Sherpas followed followed that lead. And they've done incredibly. Now, of course, we have Sherpa doctors and businessmen and pilots and all sorts of things. A lot of that admittedly is due to Ed and his 
uh, Himalayan Trust and the work he did up there. Tenzing always felt very guilty that Ed had done all this work and he hadn't done anything. And a lot of Sherpas criticised Tenzing and said, you know, you left it all to Hillary. And I think what they don't understand was, A, he he couldn't, couldn't read anything. Um, B, he had a full-time job. You know, he worked for the Himalayan Mountaineering Institute. He couldn't just take a year off and go and build a school in Nepal. He had a job. There were a few things that, that chewed at him, but I don't think in his lifetime he realised really what he did for his people. So we realise that. <laughs> we do. Yes. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Very welcome. That concludes today's episode of The Thinking Traveller, a series brought to you by Academy Travel. To stay up to date with the latest conversations in this series, you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you source your shows. For more information on Academy Travel's tour programme, to read other interesting articles written by their expert tour leaders, or to catch up with them in person at a public event around Australia, visit academytravel.com.au. Until next time, I'm Jo Litson. Thank you for your company.